I'm Erica Ensign. And I'm Lisa Schmeiser. And we welcome you back to the saga of rereading epics in which we are rereading, reconsidering, and refeeling Julian May's saga of Pleiocene Exile and Galactic Milieu series. For this episode, we've done it. We have reached the end of the series with a final novel, book three of the Galactic Milieu trilogy, Magnificat, or Magnificat, depending on how you pronounce it. I say it both ways, depending on, I don't know how I'm feeling. <laughs> if we're talking about the superhero, it's clearly Magnificat. But yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, but... I looked it up uh, to find out what the actual pronunciation is, because I had always just sort of said Magnificat in my head. Mm-hmm. And then my uh, my Google Home, I have had the calendar event to read it on. Mm-hmm. And so every night it tells me, you know, tomorrow you're continuing an event called Read Magnificat. So I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. a different pronunciation. And I went to look it up. And of course, Merriam-Webster has both pronunciations, so they're both fine. But that was my first time discovering that the Magnificat is actually a biblical thing and Mary's hymn of praise. And I was like, I'm sure Lisa knew this, but this is news to me. Well, there's Box Magnificat. It's one of the pieces that actually I really like. Uh, it's mm-hmm. Johann Sebastian Bach composed uh, the Magnificat, which is a musical setting of of the same biblical verse. Ah. And it's really beautiful. It's a, it's a, I, I'm in the tank for Bach anyway. Like I really, he's my favorite um, Baroque era composer. So like, I was like, of course, it's Bach. I love it. <laughs> um, so when I was reading this book and when you you know brought it up, I, I had a little bit of it going through the back of my head. And I'll urge our listeners, all of whom are really active and engaged and have just, I, I want to say, pony up for the incomparable membership because you guys talk about this in the Slack there. And mm-hmm. I love hearing from you and having these discussions with you. But um I'm going to recommend when you read this book, if you're reading along with us in the podcast, like put on Box Magnificat and and that just kind of enhances the whole experience, I think. All right. I got to I got to go and listen to that. I'll be right back. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but I do. I do need to. I like it like a long it. pause. We'll, we'll, we'll wait. <laughs> yes. if, if we could afford it, I would put it in here. But guess what? Yeah. We can't. So go find it yourself. I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Mm-hmm. So yes, this is the final book in the Galactic Milieu series. And I will start again by saying I didn't remember a lot, but I, as I was reading, I, it came back to me in a way that I should have been expecting by this point, but I wasn't. I I, I have to say that this is this is another book with a prologue. Um, and I, I like the prologues. I don't like the recaps, but we haven't had those. Uh, we haven't mm-hmm. had to worry about those for a while. But I really liked how it began where... Rogi finishes the previous volume of the memoir with like a happy ending and mm-hmm. then he decides he can't end it happily and that is why he adds the the last line saying that Fury is is Dennis and I was just like oh like I don't know that just that really served to put me in the right mind space for for what we were doing I've really loved Uncle Rogi as a framing device and I feel like she at least she started this volume um, perfectly to to just sort of pull me in. I don't know what you thought. Oh, so <laughs> I was thinking about all the things I like about May and I like about this volume. But my the first moment where I was like, oh my gosh, and got super excited about diving in for the reread is um, this is where Rogi has the whole conversation with with Thin Air where he's raging against the Phantom, um, you know, and he he goes through his whole moment of will I, won't I, oh, I can't tell a happy ending. I have to tell the whole truth. 
And then um, Malama intervenes and she's like, this is fine. You, you got to trust your instinct on this. Now get some sleep because you're going to have some special visitors. And at the end of that passage, um, there is a quote. The key ring with the great carbuncle forgotten lay on the desk looking very ordinary except for a wan spark, spark of light at the heart of the red fob, reminiscent of a similar, more sinister object buried in Spain. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that line is you don't have to have read the, the Pliocene books to get that. But it's like an Easter egg for those of us who did, because we're like, oh, Felice and Culloch are still buried in Spain. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. And I had I had kind of thought before this that the Great Carbuncle might actually be like those not, guys. Yeah, not just related to it, but like that actual like that's that somehow for some reason the Lil Mick version of Mark dug it up and that has what is what he had been using all this time. But no, it is it is pretty clearly stated that that's that's not what it is. It's a yeah. it's a, a, a tracker of some sort that also has clearly by the end of the book we learn other properties especially when you build a version of it that's like a meter all the way across mm-hmm. well i was trying to figure out what may's symbolism was with because we we know she's pretty clear that the symbolism with felice and Cullicut, like having been distilled down to the to to their their, their most fundamental selves like their mutual obsession with one another and their unwillingness to let go of their fear and their anger, and this dooms them to a sort of terrible eternity together. Mm-hmm. And and so I feel like that symbolism is super obvious, and it says a lot about, you know, hell is of your own making and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the thing I've always kind of wondered about is, did Mark give Uncle Rogi the fob and use it as his his summoning device as a way of reminding himself what he's doing and paying his penance or or basically why would you replicate that and then give it to your narrator yeah because there's there's absolutely no reason plot wise for it to be red and for it to sort of gleam in the middle and you yeah. know and and it's it's one of those things where you know it, did she just sort of decide that it was going to be a, a red diamond because she likes the color red and diamonds are yeah. really you know structurally very sound or (laughs) and then later she realized oh that's very similar to this or was that something that she decided on right from the beginning and then it you know it is some sort of symbolic thing but she certainly wouldn't have mentioned this at that point in that way if there wasn't something I think she was trying to say about it because otherwise why bother yeah Yeah. I I, the only thing I can think is is Mark did this as a reminder to himself Mm mm-hmm in in some way this is a way of him saying okay i began to redeem myself back in the pleiocene um after my encounter with these people so this is my this is my 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 holy relic my totem my whatever and i'm going to give it to the man who did his best to guide me at the beginning of all of my bad choices Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah, that makes sense. Because, you know, I, for a, a brief moment, I was like, "Ooh, are we going to get any resolution on that? Like, is is there going to be anything else about Felice and Cullicut? Is that going to come out? And I mean, you know, maybe she had another series planned where that was going to be addressed in some way, shape or form. But it certainly didn't come out here. Yeah, it's this gets back to and, and I feel like we can save this for another episode where we start talking about the themes that reverberate across all of the books as opposed to the themes that reverberate across this trilogy. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I really appreciate that that light little Easter egg hook 
And um, then, you know, you go through the prologue and I've been to Kauai a few times and I was like, oh, I've swum off Poipu Beach. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a little bit of that too. And I just really, I, I feel like this is such a great start. Just because you you get a perspective on characters like Hagen and Cloud mm-hmm. from the eyes of people who don't know them and like them and are invested in them. Yep. And um, I really enjoyed. Um, I, I really enjoyed like that whole scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it and, was in Malama's role. It 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 did feel like uh, sort of. Uh, <laughs> The bit of closure that we didn't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it seemed interesting that it's coming at the beginning of the final book because it really is the one part that ties together the first series with this final series here because, you know, yeah. we get to know Cloud and, and Hagen in, in the previous series. Uh, but the idea that he, that Rogi didn't know the truth about the mm-hmm. Mental Man project um, until they tell him about it, I thought was kind of an a nice way for her to sort of you know dot the i and cross the t and connect the two pieces a little bit yeah it's um on the one hand on the one hand like my heart kind of kind of twisted for everybody involved in this scene and on the other hand like it's good to know that even when hagen gets to unity he's still kind of a really messed up Yep. Angry kind of like it hasn't worked out the kinks in his personality. <laughs> no, which is kind of a nice, uh, a nice little bow to put on it here at this book where we get the final confrontation between the humans who are excited about unity and those who are totally afraid of it. Like here we have yeah. a dude who, you know, gets to experience it finally and has has been for a while because like, you know, they came through the time grade. I don't know how how long ago at this point i can't remember exactly um but yeah still still has not become a shining beacon of you know calm and <laughs> like he's not one with the chi or whatever he's he's yep. still he's still like my father is a terrible human being and i blame him for everything mm-hmm. and 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 there's also a little bit of a self-involved hurt child there where he's like, only my father would stay alive for six million years to get my testes. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, Hagen, it is not always about you and, and your germplasm here, buddy. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, the fact that they were both so terrified was really kind of a, a, a touching thing. Like it really drives yeah. home the difference because they are still, you know, it's still so new and fresh for them. But for yeah. the the Lilmic version of Mark that we have gotten to know over the last two books, well, mm-hmm. two books plus, you know, the the previous ones, uh, is is not at all that character anymore. He has, no. you know, grown and become something completely different. So it it really drives home, you know, that there's it there's drives, something different going home. It also drives home the scope of the trauma because in theory, it took Mark, it took Rogi a while to realize. Who his family ghost was. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids knew instantly. Yes. Because it triggered all of the the instincts they had developed to try and defend and appease their abuser. Mm-hmm. And I find something just unbearably poignant about that because it's just a reminder that even with things like redaction and unification and um, all of the... Um, good works that have been wrought to, you know, help with the, the, the quote unquote racial mind and all of that. Like, even with all of those tools, there's some, there, there there's some damage that people never really heal from. They just learn to live with. Mm-hmm. And also the yeah. fact that, it, that 
Mark himself, as you know, the six million year old man, uh, not man, uh, won't talk about it. Like he still won't. He has to have he has to have Hagen and Cloud be the ones to do it. And as Malama points out, it's because he's still ashamed. Six yes. million years later, he is he is still ashamed for what he did. So. Yeah, it's 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 like it's such a small little section of the book, but it is it is heavy and it packs a big punch. So I wanted to talk to you about Mark's whole mental man scheme, because um, the first I remember the first time I read these books and um, the way I framed them, you know, through through a more teenaged understanding was, oh, he's just rebelling against society and rules and 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 questioning things. And it's super healthy to question things, even if your outcome isn't perfect. And I read it now and I was like, this man seriously killed billions of people because folks objected to a, a, a patently stupid human disembodiment project. Mm-hmm. Like the like the outcome for what he wanted was so wrongheaded to begin with. And I was like, wow, this is like the this is the dumbest rebellion. <laughs> I think like it's not even for a good reason. It's basically like Mark goes to Concilium. I want to disembody babies and turn them into super brains. Concilium, no, Mark, I'll show you. <laughs> I was I was definitely going into this book with that thought because mm-hmm. you know we we learned what the Mental Man Project was back in the the Pleiocene and yeah, like I just I was like what, really and and I had, hadn't remembered how this all came about. But now after reading these three books and, and this one in particular, I and I mean maybe this is me just hand waving it because I want it to fit a little bit more neatly into this tapestry than it maybe should for being such a bananas idea. Um mm-hmm. but I think I I paid a lot of attention this time going through to how Fury is actually, you know, Fury is the real villain of this of this piece Mm -hmm. of the of the whole trilogy here. And all the way through, Fury has been needling at Mark from sort of from within in Uh, a fashion that Mark was not really able to to recognize because Fury, you know, got to him so early. I mean, Mark was what two, I think, when he first saw Fury and was was frightened by by him mm-hmm. and Fury, and then Hydra. You know, specifically the Madeline piece of Hydra has been infiltrating his dreams for basically you know his entire adult his entire life, adolescence, and adult life. Exactly. So I feel like this plan had been implanted <sighs> at a very deep level. So it and it it it's kind of yeah. a, a brilliant thing too because this particular plan has. Mark being the father of an entirely new race, which plays into the fact that, you know, even without Fury, Mark is a very self-centered. Mark has an abundantly healthy yes. ego. Yes. Exactly. It plays it plays to his ego. So I feel like that seed was planted really early on and then is just watered over and over again. And, you know, one of the things that it's watered with is this really sort of disgusting sexual relationship with his sister that only happens yeah. in his subconscious and he doesn't even recognize. And she's planting this whole framework so that when they eventually yeah. meet in person, he will fall in love with her. I mean, it's it's yeah. just another piece in that puzzle. So I feel like if Mark had never been fiddled with by fury in his in his brain, I don't think that, that any of this stuff would have happened. I really do think that it was fury setting setting that in motion many years ago. The disembodied mm-hmm. consciousness who resented the prison. And so he's like, if I can get someone else to engineer a whole army of disembodied brains. Mm-hmm. 
This yes. is no longer my problem. And they, wow. you know, and they will all have so much power and they will be mine and we will take mm-hmm. over. And that and I think that that yeah. side of things probably also appealed to Mark, just the, the, the sheer power of it, of having having not necessarily control, but having power the over body all horror. Of them. Mm-hmm. The body horror baked into Mark's psyche is something that I've always found um, really interesting as a way to characterize him because he's always been shown as somebody who's supremely fit. Like he's graceful and he's, Mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's athletically gifted and he's very handsome and he like really loathes having a body. He loathes the appetites. He loathes Mm -hmm. the, the biological limitations of having a body. He loathes the idea of sexuality and views it as a distraction. And like the fact that you have this genius brain that's just like seething with resentment over its container is is to me one of the most interesting aspects of his characterization. And now you have me wondering like how much of that would have been part of Mark's makeup anyway, because he's ambitious and doesn't like limits, and how much of it was subtly reinforced by Fury because Fury was like, oh, you could be so much greater if you didn't have a body. Oh, you could be so much greater uh-huh. if a mental man were, were there. And there might have been, like, there might have been some of it because, you know, we know he was born defending himself and fighting for his life against his, you know, in utero against twin Matthew. Matthew. Yes. So, so, I mean, there's there may be part of it that was planted by that, you know, once he comes to the idea with, with his younger brother, Jack, that having a body is kind of an optional thing. Like, you know, yeah. things could have been completely different for him at some point if he didn't have to deal with that early on. Mm-hmm. But I do think that you know he he has a pretty decent support system around him if he would only have actually like reached out for it like rogi tried his best um yeah. but i think if if fury had not have been like hadn't been there all along sort of p- putting this this wall the subconscious wall in between mark and everybody else he he might have had a very very different life but of course if he had had that very different life then it's a very short book <laughs> then it's a short book and we probably don't get humanity you know uniting into unity as we do at the end of this book like who who knows what would have what would have happened i mean there's there's also the whole idea that 6 million year old mark wouldn't have existed and uh and wouldn't have created any of these like none of the races would have coagulated <laughs> like yeah, at a, all there's a lot of body horror in mm-hmm. this whole trilogy though and because it was there in the intervention books too like one of the most viscerally upsetting parts of the intervention books is um how shannon dies yes and um so it's the the weaponized body like that idea is already in there as of those two books and then you see it kind of being embroidered and played out over over these three books too and um there's all like the reverence with which jack is always referred to where the idea is that the the not terribly enlightened are like oh it'd be terrible to have no body and actually oh it's so elegant and jack's got a fantastic character Mm -hmm. and maybe he's a little bit of a smart aleck but otherwise he has no problems his brain is beautiful yes exactly and his dad is just a libidinous mess who Uh who had a mistress explode in ice shards it was disgusting Um, Mm -hmm. and eventually like pays for it with his own death in a way yeah yeah and well it there's like a real strain of of body horror and um Sexuality is pretty heavily policed in these books, yeah. too, because we get a lot of examples of how perverse and unnatural and hypersexed the Hydra are. 
And then we get a honeymoon scene in this book between Jack and and and, and uh, D, and it's um, it is probably like I think the only other time we've ever had anything as remotely reverent as the way that scene is written is when Rogi is with Kumiko. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. But like the thing is, um, I was actually kind of bored reading that scene and um, and it reads as a little bit preachy because it's like, isn't married sex great when both people are completely into it for all the right reasons? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you contrast that with the way that she treats a lot of, um, you know, other romantic uh, adventures in the books. And even when you get to Mark and Cynthia's marriage, mm-hmm. like that initial, their, their coupling is presented as, as, as unnatural and manipulated to begin with. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not a real partnership the same way that, that Jack and Dee is. Um, it's, it's lust and infatuation that was engineered by Fury. And then she begins having kids and he's like, Oh yes, that's right. I'm engineering a bunch of bottle babies. And then she figures out what's happening and that he's got, he's got his eyes on her kids and she betrays him in during the act of sex. And I just, I, I find the way that May polices intimacy to be fascinating. Like, I think it's a really big tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like the intimacy between Dennis and Lucille is mm-hmm. like, you know, they started as not even liking each other and mm-hmm. then grew to love each other. And, you know, they are a couple that has been married for a very long time. So, you know, they get kind of a nice, like, <laughs> it's a, it's a but sex they're scene, sacri- but they're, the, they're clothed. But the idea- but the idea is like they sacrifice themselves to the greater good. Like yep. their marriage was a sacrifice to a greater good. Mm-hmm. And so they sacrifice their sense of self and their autonomy. And that sense that yourself has to die in order for your legacy to live is is like such a theological thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I really feel like I really feel like May plays May uses these these this this trilogy to really hammer home her themes and she's got some very definite ideas like it's really notable you don't see any good examples of parents in these books um Mm -hmm. (laughs) she has opinions on how people should spend their time and raise their kids and the way those come through is by showing you all the examples of how she thinks you shouldn't do it (laughs) (laughs) it's true yeah and and it's the same thing with human relations and um I find it really interesting because part of it is, okay, the books are clearly a product of an author's belief system. Like an author's job is to come up, either they're expressing the things deliberately or they're coming out through the way the author chooses to look at and create the worlds that they're creating. And May is so clearly an author that thinks things through and has plotted things out meticulously. And, you know, there, there are never illogical developments in her books, but I find that her vision of the universe and unity and what constitutes a good and satisfying existence is um, surprisingly unimaginative in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's very absolutist. I mean, that's not to say I don't love these books, you mm-hmm. know, and and happily dive into them and find them just to be delightful for lots and lots of reasons. It's just when you do a closer reading, you're like, Wow. <laughs> yeah, she she's very clearly stating uh, stating the things that she thinks or that she wants to come to put across. I mean, I you know, there's no way to know exactly what she what her beliefs are, but it certainly she certainly takes stances. Um and like actually in one 
one of those was kind of uh, big for me. And I can't remember if I've mentioned this on a previous episode, but uh, there's the section where... Let's see. It's Jack and Dorothy, and she's talking about how she was a vegetarian as a child and then mm-hmm. grew out of it because, you know, she recognized that both animal flesh and plant flesh are, are part of nature. And what had been so clear cut was actually murky and slippery. And she had to admit to herself that that kind of idealistic behavior had been based on what is this, squeamishness and an empathetic fallacy, not a genuine ethical commitment on my part. It was very disheartening. And like, I was actually a vegetarian at the time I read these books. And that passage uh-huh. stuck with me so much that like, it wasn't all that long afterwards that I started eating meat again. So I mean, yeah. she's, she's effective in, uh, in what mm-hmm. she's doing to some extent. Yeah, I think it also helps that her books are very vividly sensual. Like, she is somebody who really loves things and food. And, like, that's great because sometimes when I'm reading books and I don't have a sense for, like, the physical textures or the physical experience of the world, it's a lot more difficult to connect with it. Whereas the scene in the book where um, Rogi and Anne talk to each other and while she's cooking, it's like she cooks him a a cheddar omelet. Yes. And, like, by the time I, I was done with that passage, I was like... Oh, I could go for an omelet. Mm-hmm. Oh, do we? And and you know what? Like some some buttered toast with jam would be awesome too. And some oh my god, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm not even an omelet person. Like I eat an omelet maybe like once every few months. But I was so and and I've had that experience multiple times with the May books or when mm-hmm. she describes clothing. Yeah, I just yeah. find it to be such a delight. Yeah, I was gonna say that because like she really works at setting a scene for you. Which I mean, to me, it doesn't work super well because I don't I don't picture things in my head the way a lot of people do. I, I I'm not completely unable to the way some people are, but it doesn't it's it doesn't come naturally to me. I have to work at it. So I find myself often just like skimming over paragraphs of description mm. of a planet or description of the clothing. Um but mm-hmm. by the by the time this book rolled around I had noticed that she takes such pains to 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 describe the clothing, you know, as in part as descriptions of who these people are, like what they mm-hmm. you know, she thought about them that much that she's you know, put thought into what they wear, how they present themselves to the world around them. So by this book, I actually like stopped and made myself very carefully read all of those paragraphs with with that description of the clothing and stuff. And I, I almost wish I had done it a little bit earlier in some of the earlier books, because I feel like I might have gotten more out of it if I would have, again, not been able to picture it, but at least given some more thought to what are those items of clothing and what are their colors and how do they lay across the body and what's the fabric made of and like all that kind of stuff is is stuff that she clearly put a lot of thought into and I only started paying attention to in this final book. Oops. Now it's it's there was one point where she like mentions the Zojirushi uh, thermos for keeping beverages yes. warm and, and I have one and I'm like I have one of those and I'm all oh wow you know and, and I could get it like exactly she nailed um, some of like some of the brand stuff because I mean she's talking uh, several Skibana, times yeah. several times about mm-hmm. Starbucks like people sitting at Starbucks and I was like this is like 1980 something and yeah. like I had never heard of Starbucks at the time I just I for all I knew she, she might have made it up but now Starbucks is everywhere. Yeah, well, it's, I find that that happened, um, if I remember, I don't 
remember i don't quite remember you're not a huge william gibson fan if i remember no, correctly. I, I, I well i haven't read any of his work to know for yeah. sure but i think it's probably not for me yeah it's it's, it's it doesn't seem because it's it's cyberpunky and, and and dystopian and but one of the things i actually really <laughs> liked about his work when i was uh reading it as a youngin was he would mention brands where where like zeiss lenses i had no idea what those were until he very casually mentions like zeiss lenses that are implanted in people's eyes for camera recording and like it was so gratifying to grow up and like when a brand comes but oh an author i like mentioned that one time no ding no it makes sense <laughs> and that happened a lot with the may books because i had no idea that huskavarna i think um mm -hmm. was a brand until like she mentioned it and then oh oh okay and 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 I want to remind people, like, Google did not exist back in the 90s when we were reading these books. Like, you could maybe go to a library and look for reference materials. But a lot of the time, um, you know, in the, in the 90s when I was reading these, if there was something I didn't know, I just had to kind of file it away in my head and hope that a reference pinged later that would explain it better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... So I actually found that pretty gratifying now to, to, oh, ping, reference, oh, ping, reference. But I, I do find it fascinating. She's so physically descriptive and she goes out of her way to create a real sense memory. And then there's that theme of body horror that runs through yeah. it. <laughs> and that anti-sensualist attitude. And I, I find that the, the tension between those fascinating. Um, so I, I can't figure out like what the origin of that tension is but i i find that it makes the reading experience really interesting it, does, um, it very much does yeah uh and and the other thing that i i also enjoy is by this book she's really not shy about showing that the the remillards are just like rolling in dough like it's a lot of rich people being rich and fantastic houses all over the galaxy <laughs> Yeah, another thing that she describes very well is is these houses and these rooms and oh the God, decor. Yeah. It's like wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the swimming pool that's like half inside, half outside. <sighs> yeah. Man, <laughs> like I just I just want to go to one of those places. <laughs> I just do. You're like you're like, would it be worth the dysfunction and the eight thousand psychic cousins if I could have the money in the nice places too? Or is this really one of those trade offs? <laughs> But uh, yeah, this so with the book as a whole, I have to ask you, um, were you surprised at, so the first time you read these books, were you surprised that Dennis was Fury? Yes, I was. And I got to say, I was kind of surprised again. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because I, as I, I had forgotten, um, and it, it obviously like it makes sense the way that she mm -hmm. ties it together, and you know it, when Fury is born, I am born inevitably. Like it was kind of an inevitable thing, although we didn't know all of the the pieces of what led to that at the at the time. But uh, yeah, I thought it, I thought it made it made good sense, but I didn't see it coming, even though it's pretty like it just it makes good sense i i was not ready for it and i was also surprised at how early in the book that is basically dealt with um and and, and at the same time i was i was like okay so this is the book where we have the metapsychic rebellion and all of that stuff goes down and that's going to be what this book is about and it's really not what this book is about that's like the no! last like <laughs> fifth of the book is is that stuff but the rest of it is dealing with with fury and hydra and then yeah. But then that happens earlier in the book. And it was just it. I like kind it. of a lot of galactic Senate debate energy to it. Yes. And I enjoy like I enjoyed the book overall, but I felt like structure wise, it felt a, a little, little bit 
jankier than the other two in this series? Yes. Well, I agree um, with that. Like the first time I I got the the Dennis's Fury revelation, I was like, oh, no, not Dennis. Uh I know. (laughs) And it's just like, it's like which of these characters would be the most heartbreaking for it to be? Yeah. And that's the one. And, um, you know, I will admit, like, I did cry mm-hmm. at, um, I, I did cry at the way that Dennis's life ends. Yes. Um, that the fact that he has to, the fact that he only trusts Rogi to kill him mm-hmm. and the fact that Rogi does it out of tremendous love. And I was like, oh my God, it's the biblical themes all over again. But, you know, <laughs> it was. And, um, you know, it, and there can be nothing more heart-wrenching than that. So, like, I was just a mess when I read that chapter this time, too. But I do agree with you that at some point, like, it gets a little thready because Madeline completely loses it. And rather than become, like, the formidable next fury or whatever, she, like, falls apart and and has a weird-ass ending, pardon my language. <laughs> and... um you know, it makes no sense compared to the woman we've seen in the last two, in a way. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a, a I felt like an abrupt about face because we had her being, you know, the the smartest and strongest of, of all of the Hydras all the way mm-hmm. along. And, you know, kind of thinking maybe we can get out from underneath the thumb of Fury. And then she, you know, we hear about it from her sort of in hindsight, thinking that, oh, I just I had this come to Jesus, this come to fury moment where I realized I could never handle all of that. Uh, I I don't have what it takes to be in charge of all of these things. And I don't know how to do strategy as well as fury does. And I just couldn't couldn't handle all of this. And I, I wonder, like, is was that just something that had been implanted by Fury kind of along the same lines as, you know, Fury had... suicide compulsion. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that's not... It's not ever spelled out. Like, Fury doesn't say, I made you (laughs) unsure of yourself in some way. I don't know. It was a little little weird. I wish we had seen something in um, Diamond Mask that Mm -hmm. illustrates the punitive aspect of Fury or illustrates the suicide compulsion so that we understood that it wasn't just um, that, so that we understood it wasn't just for craven metapsychics who, you know, mm-hmm. really get off on being evil because they've got a master who hits them in the brainstem or whatever. But rather, they have begun to understand the scope of the bargain and they don't like it, but they're trapped. Because if we had had a little bit more of that development, then I feel like Maddie's turn would have been a little bit more plausible here. Mm-hmm. Um, because then we would have had a character who was coming off of serial failures by this point and no other Hydra units and all sorts of, you know, what the heck Fury type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then once Fury is dead and she feels it, she would be like, oh God, oh God, oh, oh," you know, just like a complete meltdown. And that would have made for a, a, a very interesting dilemma. But in this case, we get somebody who's just like a hot mess all the way through. (laughs) You know, to me, it almost felt like the turning point was 
when Mark falls in love with Cynthia and not her. And yeah. that moment is so devastating for her that she never quite comes back from it, which is a thing that, you know, as a woman reader, I'm not super into the idea that, you know, yeah, like I've had my heart broken and it sucks and it can, it can be real bad. But the idea that this character who had been so competent is mm-hmm kind of brought down simply because she doesn't get the boy she wants to ask her out to the dance. And um, she also hates him too. Like that's a thing that they established in yes. the previous in the previous um book was she's like I love you and I hate you and one day I'll be the death of you. Mm-hmm. And it would have made a little bit more sense where oh there's the flash of recognition Mark and Cindy go off everyone knows it's going to happen next. And Fury is like I did not anticipate that <laughs> Paul's tomcatting would lead to more than one sister. And wow, did I not think this through? Um, and it would it, it would have been interesting if Maddie had no love left, not for Fury, not for Mark, and she was just operating on on pure hate at that point. Yeah. Um, it was just, and then she goes to Mark and tells him the truth, and Mark just you know blasts part of her brain and mark lobotomizes her so he can keep her as a life support system for an ovum yeah and then that's that's it because you know he eventually loses the metapsychic battle and her body is still in a freezer somewhere at the end of the story as far as we know yes yeah well it and presumably if if you're religious that's deeply horrible because you haven't had a chance to repent of your sins you haven't been mm-hmm. given last rites you're dead your soul's in peril and limbo and and all of that so maybe that scene is like the biggest punishment you could give somebody uh, yeah. but i still feel like maddie's potential as a grand villain kind of kind of fizzles you know like even after she subverts the high even after she subverts the mental man project and like murder like straight up Mm -hmm. murders jar babies which is a thing that she does (laughs) um you're still like oh man maddie come on (laughs) i thought you were smarter than this Mm-hmm. You successfully engineered a lot of murders of a lot of people, and now you're mooning around after your brother like he's like he's your high school crush. And come on, so I mean, you know, that's a thing that we've we've run into time and again in in all of these books is that the the women don't have a good time of it. And I feel like I, you know, it was exciting in the previous book in Diamond Mask to actually get a POV character that mm-hmm. is both female and, you know, like a, a hero, a positive influence on on the yes. world. And you know, we knew she was going to die at the end of the books because we already knew that she and, and Jack were saints who somehow died defending defending unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so we've got her and then we've got Maddie and you know, those are the the only two that are really strongly represent. Res, uh, yes, and and Cindy. and like and look at look at what happens to all these people. I mean, nobody gets a great happy ending except for Uncle Rogi. Um, yeah, but but still, like and you know, the and is you end away. up dead. Like you end up dead. That is your fate. You know, and, and and it's so weird because on the one hand, this is such a satisfying ending, but you look at the book on its own. And there is a lot of this has the feel of a galactic Senate debate thing. Like, um, there is a quote I, I highlighted where the milieu had failed to even define the uni- unity concept satisfactorily, and thus it remained a troubling abstraction to the majority of the human race. And part of me is like, 
if you've been observing humanity for as long as these guys presumably have, like, you know we're idiots. Like, you should have had, like, an entire uh-huh. school of alien pedagogy set up to, like, use small words or TikToks or tweets or, like, whatever <laughs> to, you know, convey unity. And instead, we get, like, chapters where there's, like, oh, there were pro-unity, anti-unity debates. And I kept thinking, what a weird conceit. Like, what a what a just bonkers no one is going to care about parliamentary procedure here. We're interested in like this magnificent family of weirdo psychic Kennedys and how they fight with each other. Mm-hmm. I don't. I I think maybe I enjoyed the those bits of it a little more. I also like the Phantom Menace a lot. So you know, trade mm. <laughs> trade negotiations. That's my jam. So <laughs> I was. I was okay with with that part of it because I I also thought that that was an interesting thing, too, that they kind of pointed out how Anne was not necessarily the the greatest person to be leading the unity directorate because she Mm -hmm. was so focused on, you know, quashing the arguments of the other people in in council like this, as opposed yeah. to working on the non-operant humans and doing the TikToks and the tweets and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So it was, I mean, kind of a nice illustration of of how the failure came about. And it, I I was interested in it also because it also pushes forward the the whole narrative with Mark. He's only interested in getting in on this rebellion thing because he wants to be able to keep doing the thing that feeds his ego, which, you know, at the, at the base of it is mental man, but really on the surface for a good long time, it's his his CE rigs and his wanting to, you know, electronically just let me make my, enhance. my, my, my things. He yeah. wants to play with his Radio Shack toys. And yes. like that is that is what he is into. And if he needs to get involved with all of these rebels in order to make sure that he has the votes in the Senate to make it happen, like mm-hmm. he's going to do that. So, so I was he's like when Facebook discovered lobbying. That's Mark for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, like the thing is, is I actually find Mark to be an incredibly interesting character because, and and she clearly meant for him to be because he's mm-hmm. supposed to be flawed, and he so is. And and but you know you can't help but admire his focus as monumentally self-centered as it is mm-hmm. and um as as monumentally arrogant as mark is a guy with that kind of unapologetic focus like at least you know where you stand with it with with with, with the egotist yep and in <laughs> and, the end yeah. the really awful bits of or some of the awful bits of it like the mental man thing as we discussed already not entirely his fault not entirely his thing and um, there's something that uh, Anne says about him early on in the conversation about Dennis's fury, where she's she's talking about um, she's talking about who would be best to you know lure in Dennis and get to fury, and and, and Roki's like, okay, how about Mark? And she says, Mark is a monumental egotist with a deficient effect, and unless I miss my guess, one of these days he's going to cause the galactic milieu a load of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I just really love how, you know, she's his aunt and she sees him that way and boom, that's the end. And he remains that way through the whole book. Yep. Like there's no learning, there's no growing. And um, I find it tremendously amusing that there's actually a passage in the book later on where where um, a Tony Unifex is like, okay, I have to go shopping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, 
And like goes and outfits Mark's expedition to the police. It took me. It took me so long. Like I didn't actually figure that out. They were like, "Yes, he's he's on in France shopping," and I didn't twig. I was just like, "What the hell is he shopping for?" I didn't under. And then you know, then it's like, "Oh, you have to go to this warehouse where there's all this stuff." And like I was just like, "That was not what I was expecting." There were actually a lot of things here that I was not expecting based on the you know the earlier books because here we've got Mark. Yeah, you know, the whole thing with Cynthia betrays him by, you know, making the device that she puts inside of herself and, you know, she can't help the, you know, as they climax, she she can't, she can't help but think about it. So he recognizes that she has betrayed him and sterilized him. And And then he kills her. And then he kills her. And it's just, I just, for some reason, I thought that was going to be a a bigger deal. I mean, it's still, it's it's a big deal, but it just, it felt like it. It just they kind of move on. It happened, like, and then they're that like, was "Oh it. yeah." <laughs> I was like, "That was one of the moments that I was kind of waiting for because I knew it was going to be coming." And the same thing, like I, I was a little bit disappointed that it was future Lilmic Mark that did all of the shopping and that did all of the outfitting and had all that stuff. Like I kind of wanted to think that Mark was brilliant enough that he had this as a backup plan all along. You know, like if things go really, really south, we are going to escape. I think Mark's backup plan was, I don't have a backup plan because I don't need one. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think I was giving him too much credit. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's, I want to get back to um, the conversation that Anne has with Rogi. Like I went over it with kind of a fine tooth comb because it's the conversation that effectively kicks this whole trilogy into act three. Mm. Um, and what she says, this is, this is where we find out that the reason Dennis is fury is that he was abused by Victor. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of retconning to Dennis's character here, I think, because um, at one point, you know, Anne is like, so, can you talk can can you can you tell me what's going on can you tell me if there's any formative trauma or things like that and rogi's like there was a time where he said papa can't ever hurt me again i should have realized that happened but one of the things rogi also says is um in hindsight i can see things about dennis that troubled me he blamed himself when vic killed don he knew that vic deliberately suppressed the operant mind powers of the younger brothers and sisters but he never did anything about it and um, I think you and I talked about this when we talked mm-hmm. about intervention, where he did try, but the the Victor Don dyad was so strong. I don't remember him trying, though. I thought we had talked about it and said that we were a little bit surprised that Dennis just yeah. didn't do anything. Because I think it wasn't that he didn't try. He he had decided that if he had tried, he may or may not have have succeeded. And yeah. therefore, it wasn't it wasn't worth it to to do that because then he wouldn't be able to do his good work you know elsewhere yeah because there was the, there's a conversation they have after don's funeral where dennis says i found out why we don't have a lot of operancy it's because victor gets to them too early and and, and and bludgeons them down and we did talk about the inaction especially after victor you know manages to kill several of his siblings yes but it does seem like all like now is when they decide this is a problem. Like this wasn't a problem earlier. <laughs> and I was like, you're going in hard on Dennis a little late in the game. But I guess they kind of had to do that to explain why he had the personality splitting trauma that he did mm-hmm. and why Fury didn't emerge until after Victor died and Dennis could no and Dennis's subconscious could no longer focus its its 
sense of outrage and, and grievance on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, that. Uh, I never had any whisper of a of an idea that that could have been a part of Dennis's psyche until this series until these these three books so so I did I did also feel it was maybe a little retconny but at the same time sometimes that kind of trauma is so deeply hidden that you wouldn't necessarily have any idea of it there's not a breadcrumb and I guess if May's intention was to have us feel the same shock Mm -hmm. and dislocation as Roki did she does a good job of it yep yeah Um, yeah and you know again I I realized that the the book ends with um Paul and Jack and Dorothy choosing to sacrifice themselves to um, bring about like a moment of galactic unity and get humanity on board. And that's supposed to be like the big emotional climax of the book. But I was like, just so emotionally wrung out after Dennis's death. I'm like, whatever happens. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost, I need a minute. <laughs> it almost felt perfunctory, the the actual, yeah. you know, climax of the book, because to me, the emotional climax of the book was Dennis. Like yeah. that was that was the, the big deal for me. And all the rest of the stuff that happened after that was sort of to me, it was just like filling in the gaps of the things that I knew were going to be coming yeah. and finding out how they came about, um, you know, because I, I knew the, the broad strokes and I didn't know like what was what exactly it was. And I honestly felt like while that last confrontation was you know it was described beautifully like the, her the way that she's describing it and comparing it to music and a symphony and all that kind of stuff like it was nice but I didn't actually get a very strong feeling of what happened at the end like why and how did the three of them die and like did were they actively sacrificing themselves were they were they just killed by the energy um and then I don't know, like, and then they're sainted for some reason. I just yeah, it's well, I think she's set up a little bit of an impossible task mm-hmm. because when you refer to two people as saints and yeah. and it's not it's not contested, it's it's not debated. Nobody is you know like a like an anti an anti Jack truther or anything <laughs> like that. Um, the implication is that they did something that was so 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 astonishingly epic or like mm-hmm. almost inconceivably grand that they've uh, you know averted a great evil and everybody recognizes this and so on and so forth. And what this came down to again was was Mark and his let me have my way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the tiny little ship going out there going, no, we don't think so. And we're actually going to, you know, we realize all of our other attempts to demonstrate unity have failed. So we're going to try this one because you've softened up the PR for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a little bit weird and anticlimactic. And um, I wonder if that was the point. If the point is, is that, that the fight's stakes were so lopsided that it need not happen. Um, I do think it's appropriate that Paul died during it because there's that scene pre-Jack and Dorothy's wedding where um, Paul Paul is helping Jack get ready mm, and yes. they're having a talk. And um, at one point, Jack says, your true love is the galactic milieu, is it? And, you know, mm-hmm. you don't you don't even love any you don't love any human being, not even yourself. You you just you love the milieu. And Paul is like, yes, that's it. This is true. So in a way, it's almost 
it, it's beautiful and poetic that Paul dies for the thing that he loves most. Yes. Yep. And I guess, you know, thinking about it, uh, I'm I'm good with both Jack and Dorothy being sainted because they were at the helm of this meta concert that literally included, you know, every human being, um, whether they are operant or not. So I think nobody's going to argue with sainting somebody who has almost practically like been inside your head in in yeah. in a way. Uh, so I guess I guess that makes sense. It just it didn't that wasn't really brought home to me as forcefully as I kind of wish it had been. And then yeah. like and Paul isn't sainted. So mm-hmm. like is that because he does you know he's not a floating brain and doesn't have a a mysterious <laughs> mask that he wears in front of his face that may or may not be a face? Like <laughs> it you know, Saints were excellent PR for the church. It's entirely possible it comes down to a PR game too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, if yeah. you've slept your way across the galactic milieu for decades upon decades upon decades, probably sainthood is not in your future, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, they, Paul, Paul 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 is like your Ted Kennedy of the family. <laughs> There's just a lot lot of skeletons there mm-hmm. um no this it, it's basically like i started thinking of the remillards as the psychic kennedys because that's that's pretty much yeah. the, the family they seem to be modeled after from the glamour and the money and the dynastic aspect of power and even the diversity because like um there some some people in some branches of the kennedy family are involved in like a utility company that powers mm-hmm much of new england and these guys have remco industries which apparently just pumps money <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so on and so forth um one of the other themes that i noticed is um and, and anna hammers this home and then rogi embroiders on it too but um this comes down to something Anne said in the last book where she talks about the hydra units and fury and she says there's always the moment of quote unquote the final fatal yes and um, she reiterates that when she talks about, quote unquote, the, the, the manipulation and seduction of the Hydra units. And then Rogi has a scene at the reception of um, Jack and Dorothy's wedding where he runs into Parnell, who is, <laughs> what, what was he, like the muscle of the Hydra units? Basically, like, like the, he was a yeah. meathead. He was a meathead. And when he's just, and when Rogi is describing Parnell, is, uh, he he looks at um, he talks about Parnell's mind is self aware. The vital lattice is still animated in his body, but he was a dead man by some awful yes. choice of his own. He had died even before he was born. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, it comes down to May is huge on on characters owning their choices and and being persons or unpersons depending on what they choose. Yes. And and this theme just comes up again and again. And the reason that Dennis gets redeemed is Dennis is willing to die to um, begin to expiate some of the evil he unleashed on the world. And Rogi is given like a hugely heroic editor edit in this book because he's the one who has to kill his son. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Jack and Dorothy sacrifice their own lives and Paul sacrifices for his great love. And... Um, we even, you know, even Cynthia gets like a hero, a heroine's at, at the end mm-hmm. of it. But I'm still super bothered by the whole idea of um, fetuses who know nothing of the world apparently making a bad choice before they're even born. Like there's like we don't sit with that horror enough. Yeah. The horror of that opinion or that perspective. And the fact that, you know, you have 
these, you know, there are five children that Fury reaches out to in the first place and all of them go Hydra. And then you have these 103 or whatever it was, uh, bottle babies, (laughs) as you said, and all but four of them can like just just decide that they're going to yeah sure we're totally you know we want hydras we want the reward all caps reward and yes. uh, only four of them say no and then you know maddie snuffs them out it's like yes the so so if you're saying that you make you can make this choice in in utero and you have given up your humanity. You are dead before you are even born, and mm-hmm. like ninety point, you know, ninety some percent of the time, that's just the way it's going to go. Like, are, is humanity really just completely doomed? <laughs> I think it comes down to having a very specific belief system where the idea is that without the grace of salvation, you are, mm. and um. You know, it it goes part and parcel with a lot of the other ideas that May is promoting too. But mm-hmm. you know, she's got some interesting ideas. Like when we get to the episode where we impact the whole the whole series, like there's a lot of her themes that center around um, who counts as a person and who doesn't and why. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be interested yeah. in like you know if there was an an alternate universe fic where Julian May writes about the four. You know, if those four babies had actually been able to come to term and do things mm-hmm. like they would be probably the most amazing four people who would also be sainted because they were strong enough, even at the very mm-hmm. beginning, to say no to something as amazing and wonderful as the the reward they were getting from Hydra. Or like what if those four babies had been able to psychically connect to Mark and Cyndia and say, we're being offered, we have to make a choice. We don't know what to choose. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) What is this? Um, But it's it's a very illustrative tale of uh, sin and an occasional redemption. (laughs) Occasional, yep. Occasional occasional redemption. Um, I will admit I was... um, this sounds terrible. Pleasantly surprised by how many how many Remillards died like over the course of this book, because <laughs> mm-hmm. you have a whole bunch of Dennis and Lucille's kids who throw in with the rebellion and get like incinerated. Yep, and just just like four of them go, and and I sat with that because uh, you know Lucille's on Earth. She's already buried her husband after discovering that he's also a Fury at, and mm-hmm. and therefore responsible for perverting a bunch of her grandkids too. And then, like, her kids are all fighting with each other about unity. And, like, three of them are on the ship with, like, three of them are on, like, the backup ship next to Mark. And a fourth one is is busy riding in, like, the gunner's cockpit on her grandson Jack's ship. And all I could think was by the end of that day, which, you know, fights the, the rebellion definitively, squashes the rebellion definitively, all I could think was, is anyone checking to make sure Lucille's okay? She was not alone at that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, because I had that th- thought, too, that just like of, of everybody, she, she, we have we have known her for the longest, you know, besides yeah. Dennis, like, and, and Rogi, and she's she's been around and has been the matriarch. She has not been as fleshed out as I maybe would have liked. But I, I have a, a place for her in my heart. And 
losing Dennis after those really tender scenes between the two of them around yeah. Christmas time was just really my heart broke for her. And then, yeah, the idea that she loses so many of her children. But I, I'm pretty sure it is explicitly stated that uh, the you know some of her other children are actually there with her in yeah. Hanover when Jack and Dorothy head off in Skura to, to go face down Mark. Yeah. <sighs> Poor lady. I know. I know. I feel terrible for her. <laughs> I also feel for poor Marie, like, you know, who has these extremely colorful, colorful brothers in um, John and Mark and um, has a notorious sister in Madeline. And I would love to get a little bit more of a feel for what it must be like to be one of those Rimmelards who is, is like, mm-hmm. oh, God, there they go again. <laughs> yeah, it's like all she gets to do is contribute her farmhouse to, you know, luring yeah. Fury in and then trying to integrate Dennis's personality, which fails. Uh, yeah. Yeah, poor Marie. <laughs> I know. I, know. I, find, I find myself very curious about, about that generation. And I can see where May is like, all right, I've written 10 books about these people mm-hmm. and this is enough. Um, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many of them. Yeah, there's one point where Rogie's like, they all blend together at gatherings. Uh Like, I can't keep them straight. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, fair. But yeah, it was was one of these books, um, for all that it is laggy in the middle, and I don't think she does a great job of arguing for unity. Like, the two disappointments in reading this book this time out, one, Mental Man seems like a monumentally stupid project. Like, it's a stupid reason to have a rebellion. And I've come around to to you arguing that this is part of a grand scheme on Fury's part, and in which case, it's a very good scheme. It's still a dumb reason to throw away your entire yep. life and like, and, like, head up a political movement. And she doesn't make a great case for unity. Like, her case against unity is articulated by one of the Lilmic, Mm -hmm. where he says, in their present immature state of development, many humans place an inordinate value upon rugged individuality and absolute mental autonomy. And, um, like, if this is your thing, well, well, only immature people really like mental autonomy. It's kind of a hard... Mm -hmm. It's a hard sell. It's it's (laughs) almost as if... She felt like the idea of unity was such a grand and wonderful thing that she didn't even need to really defend it in the books because it is just on, you know, on its surface. It's 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 perfect and it's wonderful. And also, you know, these these good characters that she's been building up, they are all for it. So, you know, everybody just should be for it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. She doesn't. I think that there is. um I think that one of the weaknesses behind the whole, but behind her failure to adequately illustrate unity is it's a question of taking something on faith versus requiring evidence to make a compelling argument. Mm-hmm. And since, you know, she's in the tank for faith and, and that's not pejorative. It's just, this right. is, this is where she clearly comes from is that she sees faith as part of a necessary moral evolution. And so she's like, unity is something you have to take on faith but she has built up this universe of characters who don't need to take things on faith. They have mental superpowers. They can rifle through your head uh-huh. looking for the truth. They've been trained in the scientific method. And they're all very smart. And so to have some of them back unity without anything other than, well, it's what um, it's what some of our finest Jesuit theologians are, <laughs> are 
all for. Like you're all, eh, no, you've got to make the case to the reader that unity is worth it. And they don't, and she doesn't ever make the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and it's presented as if it's just obvious. Yeah. So between Mark fighting a war for patently dumb reasons <laughs> and, um, and the, the stakes on the other side being so wishy-washy and, um, poorly understood as to be non-existent you're you're like okay we're having a grand and epic battle over what exactly like it's really hard to to find a rooting interest because everybody's ideas are hard to connect to i think that the, there was one particular line when she was talking about unity that that worked for me and it was somebody basically saying just like falling in love you can describe it but you can't actually understand it until you have experienced it yourself and for me, like that just connected for me. And I was just like, OK, I, I get that. And I mean, and, and maybe it was because I also felt so strongly for Elizabeth in the earlier books. And she was mm-hmm. like, you know, obviously very big on unity and very sad when it went away uh, that I felt like I, it never actually occurred to me until you pointed it out here that she that made doesn't particularly define unity and or even the reasons why it's so great i mean she there are moments where she will talk about how uh you know crime you know big crime tends to tends to go away there's a lot less aggression all of that kind of stuff and and honestly like all of that especially maybe right now all of that sounded so good to me that i i i just i basically took it as read as she as she said it like mm-hmm. this is it's it's something worth fighting for but you're you're right i had i just didn't realize that you were right until you said it out loud that she never really articulates it in the same way that she articulates all the arguments against it yeah. so i guess i guess it worked on me it goes back to you know we talked about when we read the pleiocene stuff we talked about how often mark was described as the angel of the abyss Mm -hmm. and how there were so many divine adjectives associated with him and i noted that she started using them again in association with mark yes like where she describes him as having a seraphic authority Mm -hmm. um he's he's often got you know projecting simulacra of his face as hither and yon um he's described in one passage as being proud as the devil <laughs> and you know and he gets the the angel of abaddon nickname in you know in this book this is where where it starts and then even his you know even cindia calls him the the french version of that as as a a pet nickname because they think it's funny mm-hmm. yeah so so i i think this explains why may makes the importance of taking a leap of faith part and parcel of her whole story like her whole story is essentially going to be a dialogue on the merits of of accepting faith as a necessary step towards a better more perfect type of society um i'm just not convinced (laughs) i feel like i'm definitely more convinced than you are on on that front it sounds it sounds good (laughs) like i take it (laughs) yeah it's um I, i did find she's got some insights that really seem ahead of their time in this book too you know for all that i'm like maybe maybe, maybe, i still really do love this book Mm -hmm. and what i love is when lucille and dennis do have a conversation around the christmas tree 
And she talks about some of the social upheaval that comes along with being a mortal or being a rejuvenated old person where she's like, we keep clinging to power mm. and we need to actually make space for other people and other opportunities. And um, I was thinking, okay, you know, uh, Part of, in part of my day job, one of the things that I've had to cover repeatedly are tech companies talking about how there's now five successive generations of workers in the workplace. And some of the biggest um, organizational challenges are how do you, you know, how do you make room for, for fresh new for fresh new ideas and fresh new people when the people who are already there don't seed opportunities or or positions to them and so i saw this and i was like oh it's almost like she's anticipated the way society is aging <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. which was um which was nice but um oh here we go i think i found the quote you may be talking about where um because i highlighted a heck of a mm. lot of quotes there where they talk about both christ's unity and the milieu's unity can best be de- defined as transcendent love and if that's true we have nothing to fear from it just as exotic races have maintained all along in true love individuality is never compromised or diminished what's missing is the antagonism yes yep yeah and i think there and was also another line specifically about falling in love how you just can't get it until that would make sense you've uh, until you've experienced it which and, and I'm just gonna bring up my my complaint again about how May really seems to feel like if you are not able to be a sexual being, like for all of that, she seems to have some hangups about sex in general. She also feels like Mark, like Rogi specifically refers to Mark as an emotional cripple. Yeah. I don't even like saying that word um, for not having experienced romantic love and like yeah. not being able to experience sexual feelings. Um, and like, you know, he like Rogi says he is almost he'd almost written Mark off. Um, and mm-hmm. that's the thing that she has referred to previously. Like, you're not a full human unless you've experienced that. And I would just like to say for all of my ace friends out there, like, I see you guys. I see you. Yeah. And I think it goes back to her right. idea that's. It goes back to her idea that sexuality is only legitimate when it's done in selfless unity mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably in a procreative way. Like, I find it really amusing that despite the fact that they had um, a gay wedding in the last book, um, every time mm-hmm. Luke's spouse is referred to, he's referred to as life partner instead. Like, he's not given the patina of legitimacy that a phrase like husband goes with. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was like, oh, you know, you're trying, but I see what you did there. Yeah. And she um, probably, I mean, I think yeah. as we mentioned before, that Julian May probably didn't even have any conception that that Ace or Arrow people existed in the world around her, even though they no. definitely did. But yeah, that's just not something that that she it's put in her books because she didn't, yeah. she didn't, she didn't know. It's probably not some, and the conception of um, forswearing that kind of attachment, it would have been um, reframed as somebody who was, who was devoting their life to something else instead, whether it was holy orders or government work or what have you. Yeah. I mean, you could make a plausible argument that Anne Remillard is probably ace. Yeah. Yep. You know, because they have her present as Athena when she's trying to be seduced by theory by, by Fury and she goes into the Jesuit church she goes into in, into into the Jesuits and takes holy orders. And, you know, that was the model where either if you were a woman, either you um accepted that your sexuality was such that you were going to um 
procreate and have a union with somebody else, or you were going to take your orders and devote your life to a greater institution and a greater good. <laughs> so there's that. Um, you know, it's it. I was talking with somebody with with some friends, and I was like, the thing that I hadn't realized about the May books until this reread was like how deeply culturally conservative they are in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and um, th- that goes along with it. Um, like I said, I'm still really bothered by the whole idea that that fetuses are somehow capable of the same types of moral responsibility grown adults have. Mm-hmm. And I'm also still really bothered by the way that May presents abuse victims as irreparably damaged. Yes. Yeah, that is because a piece we of saw this that I really also yeah. Cause I kept thinking, you know, there are probably people who were victims of familial abuse who read these books and to find out that the big bads are people who were victims of sexual assault and then people who perpetu- and, and then people who you know encouraged maladaptive sexual relations among relatives like i can't even imagine what it would feel like mm-hmm. to to survive that kind of abuse and find out that this author thinks that this makes you more susceptible to to being evil. Yes, to becoming a monster because you don't have. Yes. There are no examples of anybody that that anything like that has happened to in these books where they don't eventually turn out to be monstrous in some way. Yes, we do have yes. Dennis, who is like Dennis is like the paragon of of wonderfulness, and yet he's only that way because he had a split personality thanks to the trauma. Yep. So, and that's the thing is she's ugh. essentially arguing that it breaks you to the point where. Part of you is going to be is 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 going to. Her argument is it breaks you mentally, mm-hmm. and that in turn breaks you morally. Like she she and she inextricably links those two things first with Felice and then with Dennis, and I find that stance to be incredibly hostile towards the basic humanity of people who have suffered that kind of abuse. Yep, and uh, it's something that now that I've read it, I can't unread it and. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things where if you were to ask me, could I recommend these books, I would have to caveat them very heavily with, look, there are a lot of things she says that could trigger you depending on what your background are. And here they are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Many content warnings, honestly. Yeah. 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 Which is funny because you're like, oh, it's psychic Kennedys in space and Mm -hmm. that should be like a hoot. And then you're like, oh, no, it gets big and theological. (laughs) It sure does. Yeah. So I have a question that I'm wondering if you can answer. Um, I could try. Yeah. And I have this as a note where, you know, Cyndia um, has the first baby and it's Dennis Hagen Muldowney Remillard. And there's a parenthetical that says his mother insisted on the unusual second name, but refused to explain the significance and I'm like, what is the significance? What? I don't remember. And I, there is no, like, as far as I can tell, there is no significance because I wondered about that too. Like, there's, there, if there was a point in here, and I don't have like a searchable thing, I just have the, the books, but I, I could not come, like, I racked my brain. I could not come up with it. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, Hagen, like, I always thought that was an interesting name for their son. But then when it's specifically called out like that, because, yeah, that absolutely made me, like, turn my head as well. Like, I mean, it's apparently uh, Hagen is the 41st largest city in Germany. Like, when I Google it, like, (laughs) is is that the thing? I don't I don't think so. And, like, I 
feel like, you know, she's trying to point something out, but I don't remember the name Hagen coming up anywhere else. And I mean, maybe she maybe it's hidden in there and one of our listeners will will tell us and it was just so subtle that it wasn't even the word Hagen. It was something I don't know. But uh, like, you know, there are some famous like there's a pianist named Sarah Hagen and (laughs) like an actor. (laughs) But uh, Mm -hmm. or Hagen's the name of her mom's favorite, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then why would she not say like that? That's the weird thing. It's like, you know, she she insisted on it, but wouldn't say why. Well, that's that's weird. Like that's there's something funky. Why do you why do you mention that if there's no follow up or it's not an Easter egg to the readers? Mm-hmm. Like I get that the great car- the great carbuncle is an Easter egg to the readers, but Hagen, I, I was like, I mean, is unless this? is his name just some weird bootstrap paradox that six million years later, Lilmic Mark plants in Cindy's head just so that he ha- ends up having the right name, like, f- which and that would be ridiculous, and I would not like yeah. that. Oh, it's uh, So I'm sorry, I cannot answer that question because it's okay. just weird. But again, <laughs> I will say to our, our listeners, uh, if you can, please do. Yeah, let us let us know because that's yeah. that's weird. Yeah, no. And one of the things I want to point out is we've had listeners who have excavated like old interviews and um, material that we were not aware existed. Um, I will admit, like, I felt real terror when you're like, we've made Reddit. And I was like, oh, God, no. And- <laughs> uh-huh. yep. But it was somebody who had linked to an old interview with May where she uh, talks about how she says she actually planned this trilogy first. Yeah, which is like, and that's something I want to get into in our next yeah. episode when we talk yeah. about this this thing as a whole. So thank you to, to the listeners for for doing that work yeah. and pointing us to that, uh, that information. Yeah. So we will so, definitely yeah. touch on that. So once the rebel rebellion really got going, did you find yourself like looking at all the name drops and trying to get more of a sense of the rebels so you could map them to the characters who were in the the Pleiocene epic? Yes. And I felt like I didn't get nearly as much as I expected to. Like I I actually got I got the I felt like I got the characterization from all of these people way more strongly in, you know, in the adversary than I did here like here it was just names that were being dropped and like they they really didn't do a whole lot i mean alex yeah. mannion did because he was sort of a part of mark's life for yeah. for all of this time but like when it come, came to somebody like patricia castellane i just felt like she was very underserved here because Ugh. for for being as devoted to mark as she is in you know in the in the pleiocene era and, mm-hmm. you know, we hear that she's so devoted to Mark and rebellion that, you know, she sacrificed her entire planet. Well, we she makes this... a pass at him, too. Like mm-hmm. his wife has just had a baby and she's like, oh, by the way, if you'd like an affair, I'm, I'm available. Uh huh. And then, you know, it's not like she even really, quote unquote, sacrificed her entire planet. It was it was an accident. Like it was a mistake. She, yeah. she decided that it was worth risking her entire planet to attack uh, Jack with um and Dorothy with antimatter bombs and then you know they go through and that that's what destroys her entire planet but like the way that I was expecting it to play out was more like her doing some you know drastic I'm going to I'm going to completely sacrifice my planet because I think it's going to let us win and it wasn't that at all it was just sort of like a a, you know she was a zealot and it was Mm -hmm. and she made a bad call and it was a mistake and it was kind of like a whoopsie no, like you said, it does her no favors. And and this gets back into, 
this gets back back into Julian May has a problem with ladies. Um, because mm-hmm. you know, again, she makes a run at a married man while his wife is still recovering from childbirth. And and um, they have been like Mark and Cindy were widely known to be completely and utterly head over heels in love. They went everywhere. There was, you know, I know Patricia Castellane wasn't there, but people talk. And when they first met and touched, there was literally like Mark's brain popped so much that there was literally a flash of light around them. So the idea that this woman would then offer herself up to this guy who is genuinely head over heels in love, I just, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. It just felt very weird. Yeah, no, there's a there's a lot that's a little there's a lot that that feels off about her depiction. Um, <laughs> the is it how do you say it? Kiof Kios? Uh, Kio Dar- is how yeah Kio is how yeah. I was saying in, in my head. Yeah, um, and it's one of those. It's it's weird because when when you have these pronunciations that go on in your head. And then when you stand in that lounge, you're like, maybe I should Google how that's pronounced. <laughs> so, so, but you have the, the, the twins, one of whom doesn't speak and they're married to each other. And like, no one bats an eye at this. And um, I, I sort of feel like, you know, that's a, that's a really heavy broadcast. Like she real like may really seems to have a thing for, for problematic family relationships. And, um, like she always stacks the deck on her villains because she did the same thing with Kieran and Sher- Sharon- Shannon O'Connor, mm-hmm. and and she does it here too. And basically, like the implication is that you know, oh, if there's some familial sexual abuse, you will either end up a raving supervillain or a raving supervillain. Yeah. <laughs> those are your choices. <laughs> yeah, those are your choices. And um, you know, again, I'm like, really, you couldn't. I feel like the I, I feel like this saga, while very satisfying from like an operatic scope, and you know, there's a emotional catharsis at the end of it for a couple different ways. Like, you know, I have to always take a moment after Rogie and has this thing with Dennis, and after Dennis calls him father and and, and like leaves the plane forever. But I, I feel like this series could have landed this trilogy could have landed a little bit stronger if you didn't stack the deck so obviously. Yes, and you know, you know even. I I liked I liked that Rogie got a happy ending, but it also felt like the deck was stacked for Rogie all the way along too. Yeah. So, you know, she's stacking the deck against against the baddies and she's also stacking the deck for for the goodies. So he really like it's it's lovely and it's sweet and it left me with like a warm fuzzy feeling in my heart. But at the same time, it felt like just a really pat in ending that did not have a good reason. Thank you for writing my book. Here's a lady for your reward. Yeah. And yeah. And and she there's there's never any like there's we no see explanation it. as to why yes. she orbit back or what compelled her to or why Rogi is like, okay, after a hundred years, I'm over it. So that's that's great. Well the thing um, is we've seen we have seen from Rogi's point of view a number of times how much he has been regretting his actions like way back when and how he wishes he could undo it. And, you know, he he writes one of the books from her from Elaine Donovan's house in Hawaii and hopes that she will stop by and he'll get to see her. And it never happens. So we've seen everything from his point of view. We've got the the, the male POV and then we get absolutely nothing from her point of view the only thing that we know is she is you know like the the mother of teresa kendall and 
or is it grandmother? I can't remember. There's too many generations. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. I'll and then at the, the family tree at this point. <laughs> and then at the end, she shows up. And I mean, I found myself thinking about it like 10 minutes after I finished the book. Like, well, OK, so did Lil McMark ask her to show up? Did he compel her to show up? Did he plant something in her mind? Like, it's like, n- why do I care? I don't know this person anymore. It's been like four books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so, so there's a little bit of that. Yeah. It, it really does feel like she is is a gift that is delivered to Rogi by Lil McMark for mm-hmm. just, you know, for being a good guy. And that feels a little icky to me. So like, as, as happy as I am for him, I feel weird about it. The ending is a little is a little neat and a little pat, and it, I like how she closes the door on on. Okay, he's done with his memoirs. He's done excavating his past, and Elaine is his future. And with luck, this is exercise him ghosts. What I wish we had spent a little bit more time on is the fact that Rogi is a frankly terrible and mostly indifferent milieu rebel who who mostly <laughs> is a milieu rebel because he enjoys being a contrarian, and um. Going along with May's incredibly um, clear preferences on on the importance of taking a moral stand and then giving your and, and then giving yourself over to it, I do find it really interesting that she lets him remain a doubter. Does she and though? It, because well, he, he's 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 not unified. He he's- hasn't joined you. However, at the end, Mark, Lil McMark says to him, and I I don't have the line in front of me, but basically he says something about unity that, uh, you know, you might be you might change your mind about that in the, the next coming little while. And there there might be some reason like it's very strongly hinted at that something's going to happen in Rogi's near future that's going to make him change his mind about unity. And then Elaine Donovan shows up on his doorstep. So I think that gets back to the sort of, you know, unity being like profound, true love. And I think that she's basically telling us that in the end, Rogi is going to be unified and it's going to happen because because Mark sent Elaine back to him at the very end. So while technically, yes, when the book closes, like the last page, when the door closes behind Elaine as she brings her cheap champagne in for them to celebrate and catch up on lost time, technically, he, yeah, he's not unified at that moment, but it is very strongly hinted at that he will be before very long. Because what he says, uh, I, I found it, it's in the epilogue where yep. um, Mark is like, okay, I'm taking off now, um, as it were. And... Uh, Rogi says, will you go away? And the, the ghost says, yes, but if you're ever morally endangered, your carbuncle will summon coll- colleagues of mine who assist you. There are four of them, and they were human bodies. And Rogi's like, corporeal limb, like, what next? Mm-hmm. And Mark chuckles, and the ghost says, perhaps something interesting. And Rogi scowls and says, what I'd appreciate is some peace, and I don't mean unity. And then Mark says, you might find its merits more appealing in the months to come. Talk it over with Malama. So I think that's what you're talking about there is maybe Mark is doing a little bit of proleptic prophesying and saying, hey, it's, you know. You're going to get there. Yeah. So maybe maybe Elaine is supposed to be why and how he joins Unity. Mm -hmm. Yep. Maybe that's that's it. But but very much how I read it. So I, I didn't I didn't feel like may let him get away with still being the rebel at the end i really read it as as that he was he was going to finally see the light because i really liked the part i found it actually very poignant where rogi is describing the meta concert and he says um you know the first ones to respond are the coagulating children Mm -hmm. who quote unquote a silvery chorus of innocence that echoes faintly among the stars 
And then the adult operants join in. And then finally, the normal minds rise up for a minute. And he writes, my mind's eye watched and my mind's ear heard what happened, even though I held back. And I found that unbearably poignant for, you know, a couple of reasons. First, because it shows how scarred he is by Don even after all this time. Yes. Like he always resisted Don battering away at his mind. And it shows that that fear is just so, so deep mm-hmm. that, that even with something like this. And it also, um, it also shows that that Rogi more or less lacks the moral conviction to be a really effective rebel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He lacks the moral conviction to, to go one way or another. He's still, and, and I, I like that she chooses to keep him frail. And I, you know, and I, I do agree. And I've come around that, that May is leaving the door open to hope that Rogi like sees the merits of unity. But I do like that he's not there right now. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I guess I would appreciate it more if I just hadn't felt like it seemed so blatant <laughs> that he was going to <laughs> to not still not still be that uh, that same character anymore. And like it almost mm. felt like she didn't want to have to write him as a different person, so mm. she let him stay the same until the end of the book and just you know dropped hints that he was he was eventually going to not. Uh, not be the same cantankerous old coot <laughs> that we have grown to love so much. And that's the thing is, I do love him. I feel like he's the perfect narrator for this series. Yes. You know, precisely because he's not a, a, a mental giant, as it were, like a metaphysical giant. And because he's somebody who advocates for creating connections through kindness and for holding on to both your simple pleasures and your profound fears. Like, he's the most human and most fully realized character in this book. Yeah. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. Yeah, and I think May is is using him as like a stand-in for all of humanity here. So we're supposed mm-hmm. to like see what Rogi's doing, and when he's like, "Oh, the loving Meta concert kept going, and I refuse." Oh, quote, even though the joyous song was heart-stirring and indescribably beautiful, I still refuse to join in. And I think we're supposed to see ourselves in that, mm. and and have our own conversion experiences. I <laughs> know, <laughs> oh, but. Uh... I, I do like that May takes that approach and wrestles. I like it when an author has a very distinct point of view, even when I don't agree with what they're concluding or why they're concluding. I like the effort. And that's one thing I did appreciate about this whole trilogy is I didn't feel let down by the third book, which can happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. I felt like most of the endings made sense with the exception of Maddie's and Rogie's, which is another good thing. Mm-hmm. Um and it was just, it was a very emotionally cathartic experience. And those are nice to have every once in a while, too. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I I still think that it's probably my least favorite of these three, which is not surprising because usually the endings are not, not the endings aren't my thing. But I, I did feel like it brought this trilogy um, and, you know, intervention. Like it, it she, she hit the landing well enough, yeah. well enough for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. She 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 landed that plane. Yes. <laughs> is what, what I've been saying on, on on other things when we talk about this is and she landed the plane. There might have been a few bumps. Um, mm-hmm. you know. Maddie was lost in transfer. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I will admit, like the first time I read this, I went back because they used they had um my paperback copy had this magnificent family family uh tree at the end of it. And so, like, I flipped over to look at the family tree, and it, it's like spoilers galore because she has like birth dates and death dates for everybody. 
So I'm, I'm reading through the book like, okay, how did they die? How did they die? Oh, that's how they died. But <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a little jealous of that because my version only has the Remillard family tree. It doesn't have like any of the other families involved at all. So yeah. I was, but I, I think one of the earlier novels does have that. So I could go back and, and look at one of that those two. Or uh, you find out that, that Karen O'Connor is distantly related to... Uh, the McGregor clan yes. and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the only way you find it out is from from that. It's not like it's specifically called out anywhere. No. No. Well, Erica, I loved rereading and revisiting and refeeling this trilogy with you. And I love seeing things in the book when you pointed out. It has been such a rewarding <laughs> experience. And I'm so grateful that you are the one who architected this whole series and figured <laughs> out how to make my my dumb oversized ambition actually like scale down to human stuff and work. Well, that's 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 my my uh I don't know duty Your in superpower. life. My superpower. Yes, yes. Yeah. It is it is the thing I am I am good at is uh is scaling down the big ideas to make them work. Well, that's a huge gift, though, because there's no point in having big ideas if you can't execute. Very so, true. Very so, true. yeah. So, yes, don't, this has don't, been great. Don't, don't downplay. You did great. <laughs> yeah, this has this has been great. Like, I've, I've seen so much more uh, through your eyes, which has been wonderful. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more on our next episode. Yes, we've got one more coming for you uh, next month when we will just sort of do like, it'll probably be short, but a little debrief on the experience of reading all of them, talking about all of the books in context and, you know, how we sort of feel about it after, after the end of it. So uh, I look forward to doing that with you, Lisa. Me too. Me too. I've been I've been biting my tongue to avoid saying too much because mm-hmm, I wanted same. to make sure we got it in the next episode. <laughs> so yeah, so definitely don't miss out on that one just because we're done with the books. We're not done talking about the books. So uh, yeah, until then, I'm Erica. And I'm Lisa. And thank you once again for joining us on this epic journey. Saga of Rereading Epics is a proud part of the Incomparable Podcast Network. Visit theincomparable.com for more geeky podcasts, and while you're there, you can become a member, support the show, and get future episodes of this podcast right now.